Hello everyone and welcome back to the World of Sharks podcast, the official podcast of the Save Our Seas Foundation, where we talk all about the amazing group of animals that are sharks and their relatives and the underwater habitat that they call home. I'm your host Isla and every episode I sit down with experts in science, conservation and storytelling to take you on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. This week we are diving into the world of a very iconic species, the blue shark. Known for their inquisitive nature, graceful movements, long sweeping pectoral fins, incredible metallic blue colouring and very boopable noses, the blue shark is a favourite with divers, scientists and shark nerds all across the world. Considered the most abundant oceanic shark species, they are also the most frequently fished and dominate the international shark fin trade. They have an unusually fast reproductive rate relative to most sharks and also tend to hang out in the high seas, which exposes them to intense fishing pressure. So it's really important that we know more about them and which areas are vital to their survival so that we can better protect them. And this is exactly what my guest today set out to do with her PhD. Friend of the pod, Jenny Bortolusi, is a shark scientist interested in the habitat and trophic ecology of elasmobranchs, meaning that she seeks to understand how sharks use their environment and how they interact with other species. Her PhD research focused on answering these questions for Irish shark species, namely the blue shark and the poor beagle shark, who does also make a cameo in this episode. Now, long-time listeners of the podcast might recognise Jenny's voice. She was on our first ever episode of this podcast, back when it was still called The Whole Tooth. She did an episode with Gillian Morris-Brake of Sharks for Kids on shark reproduction, which is a really funny and educational episode, and I highly recommend that you give it a listen if you haven't already. That was in 2021, two whole years ago, if you can believe it. And Jenny has done some really exciting things since then. Not only has she completed and successfully defended her PhD thesis to become Dr. Bortolusi, but she also became a Save Our Seas project leader for her work on the reproductive state of blue sharks and very recently started a position as a postdoctoral consultant for the Important Shark and Ray Areas Project, which we talked about on the podcast a few episodes ago. It's a super important and ambitious project working towards the better global protection of sharks and rays. So massive congratulations to Jenny on her new job and the team are lucky to have you. In this episode, we talk all about Jenny's journey to becoming a shark scientist and then spend a fair bit of time discussing the beautiful blue shark and what Jenny has been able to find out about them. So she was asking questions like, why do they come to the Irish Sea? Why is it an important site for them? What are they doing while they're there? What are they eating while they're there? And she's actually found out some potential surprises. So one of the things that Jenny has been looking at very closely is the possibility that blue sharks might chow down on jellyfish from time to time, which is a little unusual for a shark. And she discusses some of her theories why in this episode is super, super fascinating. And another thing she's looking at as well is also the reproductive state of blue sharks that come to her study site because the majority of blue sharks in the area are actually female, which is also really interesting and maybe has a couple of implications. We also discuss their conservation status and how overfishing threatens their survival. 
Also featured in this episode are two very travel-happy poor beagle sharks, some breaching basking sharks, and a very unique experience with a large number of sunfish. So get ready to meet the most boopable species of shark, and let's dive into our episode. Hello, Dr. Jenny Bortolusi, and welcome back to the World of Sharks podcast. Hey, thanks for having me again. I know, <laughs> I know. Thanks for so much for, for coming back. It's so nice to have you back on. And of course, there has been a huge change since you were last on the podcast. You are now a doctor. Congratulations, Jenny. Thank you. It finally happened four and a half years after I started. <laughs> How does it feel? How is post-PhD life? Post-PhD life is pretty good it feels a lot more relaxed in my life um at the moment although i just started a new job so it's it's there's still some stresses there but at least it's not a thesis hanging over me um so it feels pretty good and uh, it's still weird to have people call me doctor I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> it never uh it never gets old honestly like i still i still love it it's been like five years for me and i love it every time someone says it um have you gone through the stage of cha- updating all of your posts yet yeah yeah, I uh, not not like not actual physical posts, but all my social medias pretty much immediately went from Sharky Jenny to Doctor Sharky Jenny. <laughs> I noticed that, <laughs> as you should, as you should, you have earned it. Um, but we actually have you on today to talk about the subject of your PhD, which is the beautiful blue shark, which I am so excited for. But first, we are going to do what we always do on this podcast and find out a little bit about you first. And one question we always ask our guests is, what is your most memorable experience? But you already answered that on our first ever episode. You were the first guest to ever answer that question. So... I wondered if you'd had a memorable experience since you were last on the podcast, which was in 2021, so almost two years ago now, which is absolutely crazy to think about. Yeah, yeah, wild. And um, at the time, I can't remember if I was about to start or had started my fieldwork, but summer 2021 was pretty epic for me, shark-wise. I got to tag blue sharks and take samples from them and see them but on top of that summer 2021 in Ireland was glorious not only for blue sharks but we got to see so much wildlife while being out on the boat there was one day where we went out and I had never seen a basking shark at that point and we got to our location and stopped the boat and we were waiting for the anglers and the skipper to set themselves up and we were sat on the front uh, at the front of the boat and I suddenly saw this giant splash on the horizon and I was like what was that and then a few seconds later this basking shark breached right ahead of us and then we kept seeing them breach throughout the whole day like seeing these huge splashes everywhere and I cried the first time I saw it but then if that wasn't enough on our way back to port that evening we packed up we got to see so many sunfish like dozens and dozens of sunfish all around our boat yeah when we were packing up at the end of the day they all came up close to the boat like within arm's reach which was 
just surreal. And then we start steaming back towards port. One of my colleagues goes, oh, look at that, another sunfish in the in the sea. And I look back and I go, that's not a sunfish. That's way too big of a fin to be a sunfish. And I suddenly shout, basket shark. We ended up like basically myself, my supervisor and my colleague just did the speediest change into gear that I've ever done in my life. It was like in a blink of an eye, I went from being in my like fishing gear and overalls to being in my bikini with fins on, ready to jump in the water. The skipper like circled ahead of the shark and we got in the water and this eight meter Baskin shark just swam past us. And it was the most incredible moment. We got back to the surface and my colleague and I were both looking at each other being like, what just happened? To this day, I don't know if it really happened because it was just incredible to have this like gentle giant swim past us. And I say gentle giant, they swim really fast. So we were having they to do. keep up with that. <laughs> like they're gentle, but they are huge. So they swim fast, but it was amazing. That's my memorable experience. Oh, wow. Yeah, they can swim about, I think it's about two to four knots, even when feeding, which from the surface, they look really slow. But when you're actually in the water with them, you're like, oh, oh, okay. Gone in a flash. But what an incredible day. Like I was so interested in that because I've only ever, we do get some fish here as well um, on the west coast of Scotland, but they're not, you not, usually just see the one and then that's it for the summer. Never see more than one. That's crazy. And the Baskin shocks. What a a very special day. Very, very special day. You've made me you've made me want to go back out there in summer now. <laughs> Which hopefully I will do. I know. I miss it. Yeah. So you're obviously incredibly passionate about sharks. Uh, but I was interested to know if there was a point in your young life or in your career that you decided that yes, sharks are the one, these are the ones that I want to work with. Uh yeah. I credit my love of sharks and my interest in sharks to um, Rob Stewart and the film Shark Water. We were made to watch it at school when I was 14, maybe. And I, like, watching it was frying most of the film because it doesn't paint a very pretty picture and it's about how dire the situation is for sharks. And I'd always loved the ocean. I grew up, like, um, not by the sea, but not far from the sea, which meant that we would every summer on the weekends we would pack up the car and with spades and buckets and like drive to the sea and I would spend my whole time bent over rock pools looking at what critters I could find and the bigger the critter the better it was and that progressed into snorkeling and scuba diving but when I watched shark water my interest in sharks really peaked and I was suddenly like why like why do we hate sharks so much when they're so amazing and beautiful and I just started reading about them and watching more documentaries about them and suddenly I was obsessed and that sort of laid out the the path ahead of me because I've never stopped since. And so you studied at Southampton? Yeah that that's right? correct. Yes. So when you went to go study marine science, was that kind of like you being, you trying to sort of get into the shark world? Yeah. And when I got to Southampton, I didn't quite realise that it would be a challenge. You know, you kind of like, you start university and you're like, oh, 
I want to do this, so this is what I'll do. It's not always that simple and it's not always that easy, but I I knew that that was that sharks was what I wanted to study. Naively at the time I was like I'm going to go and study sharks so that I can save sharks. That was like the goal. And then obviously you get to university and you learn about what science is and you learn about how to do science and how the world works <laughs> and so it's changed like the way that what I do now has changed a lot um but I am so glad that it has because I've learned a lot along the way yeah but I, I'd still say that saving sharks is is the end goal um but yeah you you, you kind of realize it's a little bit more complicated than you first expect um, I think a lot of us go to university with like the dream of studying a specific species or like your favorite animal and you're like yeah I'm gonna be out in the water every day around this animal and then they're like no stats yeah. <laughs> much. Oh, the breaker of dreams is stats um, but you've had a super varied career and you've done you've gained a lot of experience right from the Arctic, all the way to the Bahamas. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those experiences that you've had in between uh, doing your degree and beginning your PhD? And I was just wondering, like, how did those experiences shape where you went with your thesis? I mean, let me preface that by saying that I was incredibly privileged to be able to do the things that I did. And that I don't think that in today's world there are necessary things to do, but they definitely taught me a lot. Um, and I realized how lucky I was uh, and privileged I was to be able to do them. So I finished my degree and most of the people on my course were going on to do a fourth year to get an MSI. But I was like, I'm done with university. I've done enough exam sitting, reading. I want to get out there. Obviously, also not that easy. I actually, straight after my degree, spent the first six to nine months caring for my sick grandfather and I mention that because life also <laughs> happens and that period of time also taught me a lot about myself and I made space for for family which I think is really important while I was looking after my grandfather I did so many job applications I, I can't remember how many it's part of the process and I had many rejections, many unanswered emails, many unanswered applications. And then one day, uh, one popped into my inbox that was for the Environmental Justice Foundation. They were looking for an intern for three months to work on their oceans campaign. And that was to work in London to track fishing vessels in West Africa. So what I was looking for was suspicious activity from commercial vessels, so industrial vessels. And I would do that by looking at the speeds they were going, the trajectories they were going in. Obviously, there was no way for me to know if what they were doing was illegal or not. But if we suspected something, if there was a boat in an area where they didn't have a license, for example, we would be able to write up notes, uh, reports essentially, and send them to local authorities. But what really stood out to me was the sheer volume of commercial vessels that there was on the ocean. And so when the focus is so often on the individual fishermen, for example, and then you see that there's hundreds and thousands of huge boats out there trawling or longlining 
you kind of it kind of puts things into perspective so that was a really important one for me and then soon after that I got the opportunity to go to the shark lab in Bimini so that was a complete like switch switch up of what I was doing because that was science um there was no no sort of economic or none of that stuff in there it was pure science ecological research and it was assisting PhDs in their work and so that was super cool I mean like I got to get some real like hands-on field experience there it's an amazing place for for sharks and I learned a lot working on stingrays and hammerhead sharks and lemon sharks and setting deep lines and long lines uh tagging and tracking so it was really great to be able to get that experience having only like having only a degree and hoping down the line to do to go back into research and do a PhD and then um the last internship which was possibly one of the most influential part like internships even though it was the sh- one of the shortest was my internship in the Philippines and that was really influential because we I went to the Philippines and was supposed to help on a project where we were studying mobula rays and we were doing it from a small artisanal village like fish, fishing village so small boats that go out catch what they need to feed their families and they would come back and they'd have caught rays and sometimes they wouldn't catch any and they'd bring them back to the beach and once they were on the beach we would take our measurements and um, do everything we needed. But it was only biological data that we were recording. But the time that we were there was a a time where the the devil ray, the mobula ray, um, mobula mobula, was added onto the CITES list. CITES regulates trade. But in the Philippines, if a species is listed, at least this is what I was told, if a species is listed on societies, they automatically ban its capture. So these artisanal fishers who had done this for generations and generations, and they specialize in those fishing targets. So the boats and the gear are specifically for mobulars. They can't just go off and change and decide to catch something something else instead so they just lost their livelihood from one day to the next and so who who do you blame in that case because before before these white scientists arrive you didn't have this issue and then these white scientists arrive and started taking data and suddenly you weren't allowed you're not allowed to do what you've always done um so it was interesting because it was very conflicting there was a lot of conflicting feelings around this is great the mobula ray is protected but these people no like no longer have a livelihood and they deserve to be able to survive and feed their families and in the meantime we knew that there were commercial vessels from other countries coming in and still doing what they always did and they would catch in a day what these fishermen would catch in a month two months maybe more that gave me a lot to think about um, and changed my perspective on things a lot. My From then on, my point of view was no longer about saving sharks, like I said before, but trying to find a way or to for my research to fit into a place where people were considered as much as the sharks and the animals were. 
it definitely sounds like those experiences were, were really formative for you. Um, and you can definitely see it reflected in the direction that your PhD went in. And we are going to talk about that in a little bit. But before we kind of get into the, the meat of your research, if you like, um, I wondered if we could spend a little bit of time introducing ourselves to the Blue Shock because we've not talked about the Blue Shock yet on the World of Sharks podcast. And I wondered if you could give our listeners a sort of little a little overview of this species because it's a really, really special one. Yes, Blue Sharks. What to say about Blue Sharks? Okay, so Blue Sharks are oceanic sharks. They spend most of their time out in the big blue of the ocean and they get their name not from the ocean, but from their colour. So they wear their name well because they're this deep blue colour. And they have these long pointy snouts dotted with numerous uh, ampullae of Lorenzini. They have big confused looking eyes, you know, like they when they swim up to you, they just look so confused and like goofy. Um, but they're gorgeous animals. And they're actually really curious sharks. Um, so there's a lot of instances where divers have been coming up to their three meter deco stop and like blue sharks will come up to them and inspect and uh like oh what you doing (laughs) yeah pretty much and there's a great video of one of them uh swimming up to uh a scuba diver who's doing his deco stop and like boops the scuba diver in the face mask and like swims away afterwards but (laughs) <laughs> they uh, mostly feed on squid, mackerel, and that type of smaller prey. Although they will scavenge as well on wh- on whale uh, carcasses if they find them. They're what we call opportunistic feeders, and we'll talk about that again afterwards. But they also, sadly, are the most fished oceanic shark species in the world, and I think shark in the world. They are considered abundant because compared to other sharks, they have a higher reproductive output. So they can have anywhere between four and 135 pups per litter. Um, So that's quite a lot when it comes to sharks. Most sharks would have one or two pups maybe. So it's considered high reproductive output. And consequently, they're also the most fished because they spend so much of their time on the high seas as well, where there's not so much... Um, management or enforcement of management and so uh, they're caught in long line fisheries quite a lot and they end up on the fin market they're also still in many places eaten for their meat so despite being considered the most abundant oceanic shark species their population just like every other oceanic shark species and a lot of shark species out there is declining i think there's estimated in the Atlantic to have declined by 70% over the last few decades. They're classed as vulnerable on the IUCN red list and critically endangered in the Mediterranean. But they were recently, last at the end of last year, added to CITES along with all requiem sharks, which is good. It regulates their trade. It doesn't mean their trade isn't allowed, um, but it means that it's uh, much more regulated. But your research has, as you kind of mentioned with your memorable experience, has been largely focused on uh, Irish waters and the Irish Sea. Um, and what is the significance of this area to the blue shark? So blue sharks come into the Irish Sea at the end of spring. So usually they start seeing them in May and then they remain there at least until autumn. So we caught them as late as November, but they're 
might be here much longer. We don't know um, because there's not really anyone that goes out looking for them in the winter. So it's possible that this whole time we've thought that they leave when they might actually still be there. But they come in huge numbers. Uh, they're economically important for recreational angling in, in Ireland. It's quite a big business. Uh, it's a catch and release fishery. They'll catch huge numbers, you know, sometimes more than 20 in a day. Across the pond in the UK, there's also swim with operations that have become really popular. They'll cut, they'll appear in, in big numbers as well when, when people go out to snorkel with them. So it's safe to say that it's a, a really important location for them. They come in huge numbers in into the Irish Sea and in the Atlantic. They're, 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 it's really important for them. But part of the work that I was doing was trying to figure out exactly why it's important to them. Is it because most of the sharks that the anglers catch in our field location are females? So we didn't know if that had a particular significance in terms of their reproduction or not. Hmm, interesting, interesting. And that segues me very nicely onto your PhD. I'm gonna try I'm gonna try and make this section not entirely like you either. Mm. <laughs> Hopefully it's a little less stressful. But we will be sort of diving into your PhD research. And you sort of touched on it a little bit there, but what were the main questions that you were trying to answer with your with your PhD? So with my PhD, I it was quite exploratory. So it was blue sharks are here. What are they doing here and why are they here? Um, so we were interested in particular in their diet. What is it that they feed on? And I'll talk about that in a little bit more in a bit. But the other part that I was really interested in was their reproduction. Because as I said, they're, it's mostly females. And so working with anglers and talking to them about what it was that they were seeing, they told us we almost entirely catch females. At the start of the summer, they're smaller, but they definitely, we get the bigger females coming in as the season moves on. So we were wondering if they were maybe here to give birth or if they were here just after giving birth and they were recovering. Um, so we were really interested in figuring out where in their reproductive cycle they were, because if it is big females who are reproducing, then it's a really important location to protect. And if it's not, then it can give us clues as to where they've come from, where they go in and what they're doing here. Is it a place that's really important for feeding? In which case, that's all really important information to know for their conservation and management. And then what they're feeding on is really interesting because I mentioned earlier they're opportunistic feeders. And we've had anglers tell us that they've pulled blue sharks up onto their decks. And as they've been on the deck, they've regurgitated a whole load of jellyfish. And... Jellyfish is not an obvious prey you would think of for a shark. No. No. <laughs> I can't imagine they've got much energy to them. So one of the most random facts that I ever heard was that a barrel jellyfish has the same calorific content as a digestive biscuit. And I'm not sure how scientifically accurate that is, but I, I can't imagine jellyfish would be that much of an energetic food. Mind you, I don't know how many calories a digestive biscuit has either, so <laughs> to be fair. Um, but yeah, it was definitely something that we questioned, like, why would they even consider that? Um, what was also interesting was that my supervisor, Nick Payne, had 
previously tagged a couple of these sharks with speed sensors. So he was able to, over a few hours, track how fast they were going. And what he found, like in, in some sort of back of the envelope calculations, was that they were swimming much slower than they should have been. Sharks are negatively buoyant, so they will if they stop swimming, they'll sink. And there's sort of a, a counterbalance between the energy spent on swimming to keep them at the surface or where in the water column they want to be and how much they're eating. So why was it that they were swimming so slowly? And we sort of threw ideas around uh, at the time we hadn't heard these reports from anglers and we were like oh what if they're feeding on a really slow abundant prey that means they don't have to be swimming fast and then we were like oh wouldn't it be funny if they were feeding on jellyfish there was no way in my mind and then we started hearing these things from anglers telling us that they'd seen sharks spew up a load of jellyfish or we even had a couple throughout my phd unsolicited we had people come up and be like oh do sharks eat jellyfish because i've seen this person that i'm closely related to told me that they saw one chomping down on one and we were like this is growing legs fast and we still you know we're still like there's no way so a lot of my phd was that was the simple question are blue sharks feeding on jellyfish in ireland because they're here in the summer when jellyfish bloom and maybe there's a chance in terms of the energy our other like question was maybe they're targeting specific jellyfish because for those who don't know jellyfish sometimes have these parasitic amphipods that live in the bell of the jellyfish. Amphipods are like small crustaceans and they're small, but they're very, very rich in lipids. The fat content in them is very high. And some of these jellyfish can have dozens of them crawling around in their bell. So we started questioning whether maybe sharks were targeting jellyfish that had these amphipods in their bell. Or also, was it possible that the jellyfish were not the target, but the prey of the jellyfish was? Because why go swimming after a herring or a mackerel when a jellyfish has already done the work for you and is holding it in their bell? So we had lots of ideas and theories, and we did our best to start answering some of them. A lot of it is still unanswered, but hopefully, hopefully at some point in the future, it will be. Yeah. Oh, fascinating. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, we're, I'm going to ask you about some of your findings like in a little bit, but you talked you talked about the sort of dietary aspect, but you also became a Save Our Seas Foundation project leader in 2022 for your project Baby Blues. And I think this relates to a specific part of your PhD. Is that right? So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So as I said, blue sharks in Ireland are mostly female and the anglers were telling us that they would get bigger at the end of the season. So what we were interested in is being able to stage their reproduction. Um, by that, I mean, is figuring out where in their maturity they are. Was are the females here juveniles, sub-adults or adults, mature females who are capable of reproducing? And if they are, uh, mature females capable of reproducing where in their reproductive cycle are they have they are they given are they here in the middle of their gestation are they about to give birth do they give birth in Ireland or are they recovering after giving birth or 
The other option was we know that male blue sharks apparently are further offshore. From the literature tells us that there are males, but they are out into in deeper waters. So is it possible that females are coming into inshore waters to feed, but going back out to mate with male blue sharks? To do that, to try and do that, we took hormone samples. So I would, during the field work, when we caught the sharks, I would take blood samples. And part of those blood samples would be used for reproductive hormone analysis. So that's analyzing the estrogen and the progesterone levels in the in the blood of the sharks and depending on the levels relative to each other so if progesterone is lower than estrogen or if they're about you know the same level then can we tell where in their reproductive cycle they what they are we did get some interesting results with the reproductive hormones i worked with jim gelslechter in florida who did all my sample analyses it's his expertise reproductive hormones and what we found was that as the anglers had told us um which is not surprising they know what they're talking about earlier in the season were smaller sharks so most of them were juvenile or subadults so subadults are a category where they're not mature they can't reproduce yet it's kind of their teenage years essentially their hormones start going all over the place and they get to a point where yeah it's it's basically um puberty hitting them and what happens is that sometimes if they encounter males at this stage in their life even though they can't reproduce their hormones are giving off signals that the males will try and mate with them regardless okay. uh, of the fact that they can't actually get pregnant so in places like off Canada um they've been able to show that juvenile female sharks have mating scars on them and we saw a few of the individuals that we had had like bite marks on the side of on on the side of their body which may be mating scars or it might just be inter-individual competition we sort of need to do more work on this but what seems to be the case is that juveniles and subadults are here throughout the summer uh, and it's on their migration path and then the mature females are arriving later on in the season we don't know where they we don't know where they go on to afterwards if they go offshore or if they stay here for a while as i said earlier we we didn't sample later than november so maybe they're still around after that it's also possible, and this is the thing with science, that there's a lot of caveats to everything, but it's also possible that they might have been there earlier in the year, but we just didn't catch them because of COVID and the global pandemic. We weren't able to do multiple seasons and we only were able to get out there for one year. So if we'd been able to repeat it in over several years, we might have found a different pattern than what we found over the one year. And then obviously as well, one thing I was going to ask as kind of a follow on from how you were describing what it was like when you were on the boat and you have so many different forms of data that you need to get because you had so many questions that you were trying to answer. Can you describe for us what, a, I know typical is maybe not the right word to use, but what a day in the field would look like for you? Because in a way, you know, the blue sharks, they have to be opportunistic and in a way you as a scientist also had to be opportunistic at the same time because you know you only had a certain amount of boat time you had to find the sharks first and yeah it must have just been a slightly 
slightly crazy when when a shark actually was brought up to the brought up to the boat <laughs> um so the f- first things first we're an island so we're guided by weather <laughs> uh so most of most of the time of the field season is spent at my desk checking the weather forecast every five minutes and seeing if there's a good day coming up and then hoping that if that's the case the angler that we go out with so we don't have our own boat uh and also even if we did it's much better much more beneficial for us to work with anglers who know what they're doing have the equipment know where to find the sharks so we rely on their knowledge a huge amount and they they usually really enjoy working with us uh, anglers are some of the the staunchest conservationists uh, you can find sometimes you know they're so passionate about the animal and and so interested in learning more about it so we go out with an angler and he'll take it out take us out to his spot he knows exactly where to go um and what depths to go in and what bait to use and then we get out to the spot and we let out the lines um the fishing rods and they have these little floats at the surface and you keep your eye on the float for a while and you're like is it gonna happen and then for a couple of hours you're sitting around and slowly but surely you lose hope when all of a sudden you just hear the rod like the line on the rod just going and it does this like whizzing sound as the shark has been down on the bait and has dragged it out with him or her in this case um so everyone starts yelling shark shark the the angler the experienced angler will get on the rod sometimes they'll pass it over to us and we get so excited because we get to reel in a shark and once the shark is up to the boat we bring it on board we lay out a mat under the shark so that you know it's a softer experience for it we put a towel over the eyes a wet towel over the eyes we put a hose in its mouth so that it can keep ventilating its gills ideally we would do this in the water Uh, it's not possible with the boat that we were on and so consequently because it's out of the water we work really fast we do everything within 10 minutes but that means there's an awful lot to do in that time It's a whirl of activity. There's yelling going on. Everyone's trying their best and passing things to one another and measuring. And there's one person on data and the person on data, you yell a number at them. They have to yell it back just to make sure that you've got it right. And can I have this instrument? And can I have that instrument after 10 minutes? Like everyone done? Everyone done. And you better hope that you haven't forgotten anything because the shark is then released back into the water we make sure that it swims away nicely and that's it and then you turn around to the person next to you and you go I'm so sorry I yelled (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure no one holds it against you in that kind of high stress situation and there's a then there's a big celebration we go yes we did it and it's such a good feel. Yeah, it's kind of like the image I have in my head is like a pit stop at Formula One or something like just yeah. like so quickly and everybody all working together and, and, and trying to do their own individual little jobs, but all work collaboratively at the same time. It sounds so exciting, but also super stressful. But we talked a little bit about what you found out about with the hormone levels. I wanted to, if you can, don't feel like you have to tell us anything. Yeah. But I did wonder if you could tell us about some of your other findings as well from your research. That was a very excited nod. That's a good sign. <laughs> <laughs> I can do my best. Um, so 
The other analyses that we did, so as I said, we took blood. We also took muscle samples. And the two things that we do from those is there's a biochemical analysis called fatty acid analysis. So the fuel that our cells need is what we call a fatty acid. And that's pretty much your, when you hear talk of cod liver oil being like rich in omega-6 or whatever it is, that omega-6 is a fatty acid. And then you have others that you'd find in everything that you eat, essentially. And we can either break them down and build new ones, or we have to get them from the food that we eat because we're not capable of building our own. Um, and that's what we call essential fatty acids. So by looking at the profile of fatty acids that is in the tissues of consumers we can infer certain things about what they've been eating, especially if we also take samples from potential prey items. So what we did was also collect some jellyfish samples, some fish samples, some amphipod samples, and then we can compare them between each other. They're never going to be identical. There's no way that a shark fatty acid profile is going to be identical to a mackerel profile, but they might be closer to a mackerel profile than they are to an amphipod or a jellyfish profile, in which case we know that they might be eating something more similar to mackerel than they will be eating to jellyfish. So that was our aim, was to be able to place them in relation to each other, to be able to see, is there any chance that they might be getting some of their fatty acids from jellyfish? And there's an awful lot of detangling that has to happen. It's a huge data set that comes back to you when you do that, that analysis. There's something like 70 fatty acids in the sample set. And then we caught 35 sharks in total. So I think I had almost that number of fatty acids profiles plus the prey items. But what we did find was because we sampled seasonally, we sampled in June, July, August, September, and then November, we can compare them throughout the season as well as between prey items and what we saw was that the profiles of blue sharks were shifting from the moment they arrived in Ireland to the end of the season, it had changed. It wasn't the same trends we were seeing at the start of the season versus the end of the season. Most likely what that means is that their diet has changed from being made of one thing to being composed of a different, different set of things. And when we look and compare that then to the prey items, we see that possibly is shifting towards being partly made up of jellyfish. We can't say so for certain, but we do have some clues that indicate it's possible. Interesting. That's super fascinating. Yeah, I wonder, oh, I mean, this is the beautiful thing about science, right, is that your questions bring up so many more questions. But I wonder what makes them switch, especially if they're going after those uh, little amphipods like you like you said as well, that would be really cool to see if they're actually targeting specific ones. Yeah, so our our hope with that, and we kind of got a glimpse into it, is that our aim was to put cameras on them at the same time. And we did, we managed to put two biologging packages, which these pack, these like packages in which there are different uh, electronic devices, including a camera. And the holy grail would have been to capture a feeding event where they fed on a jellyfish. One of the cameras fails because that's always what happens in science. <laughs> in the second one, what we saw, so six hours of footage, most of it is just a shark swimming in blue water and that is it. Which is still cool. 
it's which still is cool. still cool super <laughs> cool and then at one point the shark swims there's a jellyfish i see it come into the into the frame and I go, that's a jellyfish. And the shark swims directly for it. And I'm like, it's gonna happen. This is it. This is my holy grail moment. And it swims up to it. And then it swims past it. And then I'm like, why? Why didn't you eat it? And then the shark does a 180. It's It completely turns around on itself. And I'm like, oh. I was going back for it. This is it. This is my holy grail moment. And it swims up to the jellyfish again and swims past Aww. it. Oh, that shark was teasing you. <laughs> I know. But what it does show is interest. Now, as I said, shark, blue sharks are really curious. So it's possible that after swimming in the blue for many hours, it swam up to this thing and thought and was curious about it. But is it possible also that it swam up to this jellyfish and didn't see any amphipods in it. So it decided it wasn't the right prey for it. Possibly. It was just checking it out to see if it was the the right tasty morsel. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So, so incredibly interesting. And of course... The blue shark isn't the only species of shark that you looked at for your research. You also looked at the poor beagle, which is one of my favourite species, and I would love to devote an episode to it at some point. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you caught, tagged and released one of the largest specimens to have ever been found in Irish waters. Is that right? Yeah, we think so. It's hard to verify this type of information, um, but she was huge. And uh, from our calculations could have been one of the biggest ones yet. So we actually caught two, um, two big female, mature female poor beagle sharks. And yeah, for anyone who doesn't know what a poor beagle shark looks like, it's like a miniature version of a great white shark. And I say miniature because great white sharks are so big, but like poor beagle sharks will also get up to two and a half meters long or more. And both of those, the ones that we caught were big females. We tagged them with satellite tags and what we call a PSAT tag, which essentially records environmental information. So depth and temperature in particular. And we have been following them ever since, though they were tagged pretty much a year exactly ago. The PSATs recorded data for several months. I think it was six months, maybe. And then the satellite tags are still giving us locations to this day. We we nicknamed them both Danu, who was the bigger one, and Sorka. And they have been blowing our minds, especially Sorka. She travelled all the way around Ireland. We tagged them in the northwest of Ireland and she headed east and went all the round ra- all the way around the island and then back up. And then she didn't stop there because she went all the way up to the north of Norway. So if anyone knows where Svalbard is, she was almost beelined for Svalbard and sort of on the border between Svalbard and Norway, so halfway. She stayed there for three months, I think, or a couple of months, um, hung out there in waters that were less than five degrees. And she dove down to depths of, I think, five or 600 metres. And then she didn't stop there. That wasn't enough for her. She travelled 
all the way back down, came past Ireland. We were like, she's back. She's coming back. She did not stop in Ireland. She went all the way down, continued to West Africa, and she almost reached the equator. Um, so she was somewhere between Cape Verde and the Azores and hung around in, West, in the warm waters of West Africa for ages as well. The other shark, you're going to like this, Danu, she travelled around Scotland um, and went down the east coast of England and hung out off Newcastle probably for a while, you know, sort of in the middle of the, the North Sea Channel area. And then she came back towards the coast, sort of really close to the coast, travelled back up north and then hung out in the the Moray Firth for several months and then went around and is hanging off the northwest coast of Scotland at the moment. She's a Scottish shark. She's pretty much done my what life. Done? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cuz I well, I mean I yeah, I'm going off on tangent now, but I grew up in Newcastle. I went to Aberdeen University. I did my research in the Moray Firth for my master's and my dissertation. And then I just ended up on the West Coast. So we sh- should have called her Isla, really. I feel affinity to that shock now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll need I'll need regular updates. Um, but that's that's so interesting. I imagine it's so entertaining just waiting to hear the, the updates from these sharks and seeing where they've got to. My next question was going to be what your findings mean from a wider conservation perspective. So you kind of touched on the poor beagles there, but I wondered if we could go back to the blue shark for for a little bit and, and talk about what the wider implications are from your from your research. Yeah, um, so from the blue shark's point of view, despite being one of the most abundant species of sharks, I think that there's still so much that we need to find out about them uh, and especially because we know they're under so much pressure from fishing and overfishing, the more we know about locations that are important to them, whether it's for feeding or for reproduction, what we call their life history traits, essentially, the more we know about these things, the better we can manage them and we can identify areas that are particularly important to protect, for example, or activities that might be not, might need regulating. So anything we can gather about anywhere where we know that there are in really high numbers is going to be important to identify what it is they're doing there and how our activities are going to influence them. Obviously, we don't want to take away the livelihoods of people, but we can identify and work with these communities to be able to say maybe if you catch a shark of this size it's best to leave it in the water it's just about improving the welfare of the animal when they are important to human activities yeah exactly like it has to the only way that you're going to get people to to listen to you is to listen to them first right and 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 talk to them um, and that's something that's clearly extremely important to you. You mentioned it at the beginning, which is actively working with the angling community. And you've obviously gained quite a lot from working with anglers. So from, you know, being able to, to use the boat to know where the blue sharks are to also, you know, potentially finding this question about jellyfish even. 
and kind of a bit of a wider question here, but what what do you think the scientific community can gain from relationships with non-scientific actors? What is there not to gain? Because as I mentioned, there are a wealth of knowledge that we don't have. There are things that we say to them that you know, has supposedly just been discovered in science and they've known about for years. And if we developed those relationships and spoke to them and valued what they told us, we would know these things much sooner than we currently do. And as human beings, there's so much to gain from gain from different perspectives and from talking to different people who have different you know diverse thoughts and different perspectives on things if I was only closed in my sort of science world and only looked at the numbers and the facts and the stats there's so much on that I would miss out on and that would mean that my research wouldn't be as effective and as valuable as working with with these communities and, and with these people they're our collaborators, they're on our papers, and it's possible it doesn't mean much to them, but it shows how important their contribution to the work has been. They get so excited and they're so happy to hear about it, because why wouldn't they? They love those animals and they, they have contributed to this work in the same way that we get excited, they get excited. I would normally not ask this question to someone who's just finished their PhD because I'm a big believer in the fact that a PhD is enough and you should be sitting with your feet up. But I do know that you have, you are already uh, working on something quite exciting. So what is next for you, Jenny? I just started my postdoctoral position with the IUCN shark specialist group and specifically I'm working on the ISRA project which is the important shark and ray areas. Yeah and our our listeners should know all about that because we just have an ep- had an episode on ISRA's with Rima and Emiliano and Kieran who who are part of the team and and so listeners Jenny is now part of that team. I am. Which is super exciting. Congratulations, Jenny. Thank you. I'm so excited to be part of the team. It's, I think, such important work. And uh, I can't wait to see where we go. It's it's really intense because we have six months to sort of figure this out for a region and we want to get it right. But it's such important work and I'm so excited to have joined the team. Yeah, they're also, but they're also passionate. You're all such passionate people. And yeah, I have full faith that you will all drive it forwards. Um, but uh, I feel like, it, I've said this before on the podcast, I feel like I should have a bottle of champagne just to pop open and celebrate with you. Um, but next time, when I see you next time, when you're next in Scotland, we'll have a good old celebration. We can share. <laughs> but my final question, you're familiar with this question. Well, actually, I, I changed the question slightly. It's usually what species would you be? Um, but I made it even harder and I asked if you could dive with any species of shark or ray or skate in the world, which would it be and where? <laughs> it's a very good question. <laughs> I, uh, it's actually really tough because I like all of them, basically. Um, but this might surprise people because despite it being my study species, I have never dived or swum with a blue shark. And I would love to. 
because uh, everywhere every time I see people swimming with them it just looks like the most amazing experience and I tried going when I lived in Plymouth and we only had one small shark that showed up and she was so skittish that like we didn't get in the water with her so I still haven't been in the water with blue sharks so I think that has to be my answer. Of all people Jenny you deserve to be booped by a blue shark and I hope that happens for you at some point soon in the future. (laughs) I would love to they are so boopable <laughs> they are very boopable that should be the title of this episode actually i've got the brilliant world of the blue shark but maybe it should be the bo- the booperful blue shark <laughs> but jenny thank you so much for coming back on and talking all about your research in such great detail it was so fascinating to hear all about it and i can't wait to see where you go next thank you so much for having me i always have so much fun being on so i'll come back anytime you want me yes please do you are always you're always welcome on the world of sharks podcast the world of sharks podcast is brought to you by the save our seas foundation it was hosted and edited by me isla hodgson our graphic designer is the very talented jamie silver our lovely logo is by nicola poulos and the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by david knight a huge thank you to Jenny for coming back on the podcast and teaching us all about your work and the incredible world of the blue shark. You can follow her work on social media by following at Dr Sharky Jenny. And thank you at home for listening. If you like this episode it would be awesome if you could drop us a rating and a nice review on your podcast app. We love hearing from you. It helps us improve and helps to spread the word about how amazing sharks are. And who doesn't want that? If you have any topics you want covered or you just want to say hi, you can also get in touch by emailing Isla at SaveRCs.com. And you can find out more about Save Our Seas and the work that we do by heading to www.SaveRCs.com or following us on social media. We are at Save Our Seas on Twitter and at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram. Alrighty, have a awesome week and we will see you next time.